This is a Socialist News and Views special interview. I'm Nick Schillingford coming to you from the Urban Cabin Studios in South Minneapolis with this special interview. So on Socialist News and Views, we let folks introduce themselves. You've been on the podcast briefly before, but do you want to just remind folks who you are? Sure. My name is Kieran Knutson um, in Minneapolis, Minnesota. I am president of Communications Workers of America, Local 7250. We represent uh, workers at AT AT&T, both the old wireline services and the wireless services. We represent workers at DirecTV, and then we have some organizing projects in some industries outside of our traditional telecom and satellite TV going as well. Yeah. And I, speaking of that, I recently saw yourself in your local uh, communication workers of America, CWA local 7250 covered in labor notes. And the Mm. article starts quote, when your union doesn't permit direct elections of national officers, hasn't had a contested convention vote for union president since the 1950s and has never had a presidential debate. How should an activist respond to an, unprecedented three-way race for the top spot, end quote. And you decided to organize around uh, having that debate specifically, uh, you know, of folks that were vying for the national president uh, position um, that was covered in the article. Can you just talk about the organizing that was done and the candidate forum and then, you know, what the outcome of that uh, three-way race was? Yeah. So um, our local decided like you said, that this was an unprecedented opportunity for us to have a discussion in the union about the direction of the union. Um, for generations, CWA has basically handed off leadership from one uh, old white guy in the Northeast to the next uh, guy. And they're really, that sort of meant that they're the big questions about strategy and direction haven't been able to be debated by the rank and file in an organized way. And, um, we decided that we would use this opportunity to try and push that discussion to happen. So we first went to the Minnesota State Council, which is a council of all the communications workers unions in the state and asked the council to sponsor the debate and that, you know, we would provide resources like our Zoom channel, things like that. Um, The state council uh, rejected that idea um, without explaining why. A majority of the locals voted against us doing that. I think if I had to guess, I think some people are um, just don't like to stick their head above uh, the water and and get noticed. And others are a little worried about what it means when uh, workers start debating these issues. But we moved forward with the locals that did want to do it. And then we found some other locals around the country that were also interested in co-sponsoring with us. We reached out to the candidates and all the candidates were willing to do it. It was um, the the framework of it was a little more um, conservative than I would have liked. It was very much based on um, not interchange between the two or between the three candidates, but rather um, each candidate sort of getting a separate time to um, espouse their program and then also follow up with questions from the membership. And I think that was the really good thing is we had you know, a bunch of different workers representing uh, 
different kinds of CWA members from people that work in factories producing um, buses to people working in retail stores, to people working in call centers, to technicians, um, including people from Arizona and Iowa um, and California, as well as a lot of people from Minnesota. And so it did make for, uh, I think, illuminating discussion about what these three candidates stood for, what their priorities were, what was important to them and some, you know, their, their history in the union and all those kinds of things. And then uh, what was the outcome of that, uh, of that race? Uh, who, who won and who are they? Yeah. So there was a, a bigger development that happened right after our debate in the couple weeks after the debate where um, it was revealed by a uh, ad hoc committee of which I was asked to participate that one of the candidates had a long history um, of accusations of abusive behavior, including uh, sexist and racist abusive behavior. And so I um, was asked to participate in this committee. I listened to um, testimony from a number of uh, members of CWA, um, rank and file members, officers, and um, staff people that had dealt with this candidate. And I uh, affirmed that I found them believable and credible. And so we issued a statement to the union as a whole, and it was kind of like a grenade going off because I think that he, uh, this candidate was becoming the front runner possibly in the union to succeed um, as president. And this uh, had the effect of causing a number of people to question uh, whether he would be a good president. Um, not enough, in my opinion. He still ended up with about 40% of the vote at the convention. But ultimately, uh, the race went to it went to a runoff between two of the international vice presidents, um, Ed Mooney from uh, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, who, as I described, uh, was the candidate that had had these accusations of abuse um, uh, put out against him. And that, like I said, I found them to be credible. And Claude Cummings Jr. from Houston, Texas, um, who... Um, uh, was the first African-American uh, candidate for president of CWA and becomes the first African-American president of CWA. Uh, he has a long history in the union. Um, he comes out of AT&T, comes out of a big, powerful local in Houston, Texas. And um, our local initially had been non-committed to any of the candidates. We had, we found um, that none of them were really speaking to the issues that we felt most pressing um, or were really focused on the issues that we felt most pressing. But in the end, it, by the time we got to convention, we decided that um, that we would, we would support Claude Cummings for president. And so we supported him both in the first round, which narrowed the candidates down from three to two. And then in the final round, we supported Claude as well. And Claude ended up winning. Um, I think that he was the best candidate. And I think he is um, committed to, to some of the things that we're committed to. And um, I feel that his election will open things up in CWA for more participation. And, um, you know, we'll see. But like with any union officer, including for myself, I think it's really important for workers to push them. And so we're going to continue to push. Um, but I think it would have been a disaster if Ed Mooney had been elected president. Um, just hearing the way that, you know, he he treated people and, and how he, I think, ultimately about how he saw the world that it, it just would have been a major disaster to have our union led by someone like that.
I think it's super exciting. You know, I think that, uh, you know, rank and file people in the unions more and more need to be taking in the initiative to, you know, uh, push for more democracy, more transparency, more accountability, all these things that, uh, that y'all have done. You know, last time you were on the program, uh, you came on briefly to talk about the Baldi's documentary. Uh, and you said, well, wherever I'm at now, my mentality is about how to build a posse, about how to build a collectivity of people willing to fight together. At the bottom level, you're trying to get a crew, end quote. Mm-hmm. And now I was in a leadership positions, a couple leadership positions locally with Minnesota Nurses Association here before I left the hospital environment at the end of 2021. And I consider myself a socialist in a broad sense, but I've never been you know, super comfortable with hierarchy and never mm-hmm. felt super comfortable in my leadership roles. Um, you know, and uh, I think you talked about holding leadership accountable a little bit, you know, in your case, as president of CWA 7250, are there challenges with maintaining a rank and file approach? And then, you know, what advice do you give to other folks that end up, you know, taking on a leadership role within their union? How do you not lose touch with the real working class struggle, both inside and outside, um, you know, the union itself? I mean, those are great questions. And um, I think the important thing is to keep those questions first and foremost in your mind when you're active. Um, there aren't perfect answers, but I'll tell you a few things that I think are important from my perspective. Um, the first thing is, is that I really look at this not as a position of command, but as a position of responsibility that members have democratically um, elected me to take on some responsibility for the group. And I'm not the only one with responsibility. There's other people on our executive board that have a tremendous amount of responsibility. There's stewards that have responsibility. There's every member, you know, has responsibilities. So I look at it as as that I've been given responsibility more than I've been given leadership. To the degree that I'm uh, in leadership means that I'm, you know, in the front pushing things. And I often am, but I'm not always the one who's in leadership on a particular issue. And sometimes, like, you know, the other day, uh, a steward came to me and said, that they didn't think that we were pushing hard enough about a particular issue in our workplace where I work as well. And I think they were right, you know, and, you know, I was, I was pushing management through sending emails to them to follow up demanding a timely response on this particular issue, but the floor wasn't seeing it. And it was good to have the steward come to me and say, um, Hey, we need to do something. And so we, we did a March on the boss um, out of her, you know, her coming to me with that concern. And, and like I said, and I think it's really important to not be defensive about in those situations and to be like, you know, you're right. Other people aren't seeing this. I am sending emails. I am sending mean, nasty emails even, but that's not good enough. We need to, you know, show our force, show our strength and do it publicly in a way that everybody can see, because when a dozen workers do march up on the boss's office, everybody on the floor tends to notice. Um, and that's what we did. So I think being responsive and understanding, you know, that that these official positions are a position of responsibility and that leadership is actually something different. Leadership is something that um, that you have to do on top of that uh, responsibility. And so, um, you know, I try and, and fight for what I think is important and argue for what I think is important. But I also try and um, I also see a responsibility to create and cultivate a democracy uh, of of workers in our, in this union, in this sort of workers defense organization, which is our union. Um, and I think that's really important. I mean, I think you're probably aware that way too many union officials look at, you know, have a kind of careerist approach to this. Once they get in these positions, it comes along with going to, you know, trips to conferences and conventions, um, time away from work to work on union stuff. So there's a lot of privileges that can kind of end up being, um, hoarded, and uh, maintained 
and then people don't want to let go of them. But I think, you know, one thing I committed to doing was only serving two terms as president uh, this time. So I'm going to run again uh, for another three-year term, and that'll be the last one as president of 7250. Um, I'll step aside to let somebody else run, um, which will mean that I'll still be, you know, a participant in my union. I'll still be active and um, outspoken probably. Um, But also that it's important that that responsibility be shared. And I think that that needs to be, there needs to be more of an ethos about that um, across the trade union movement. Um, And then, you know, the the big thing is, you know, can we make these unions effective um, organizations for defending working class people and for fighting back? And I think our experience is that it's mixed. You know, we do, we, we try very hard to pull people together to strategize and to take action in ways that are effective. But really, you know, one local can't fight the class war by itself. You know, we need to have, you know, hundreds, thousands, millions of workers coordinating with each other and strategizing together and fighting together. And much of the trade union structures in the United States are just not built for struggle. And they've been, you know, sort of petrified wood. Um, And a lot of times they become obstacles to struggle. We are often in conflict and confrontation with the bodies above us in the union, in the hierarchy, because they don't want to fight on particular issues. Um, And instead of leading the way and coordinating struggle, they sit back and wait for us to, you know, generate struggle. And then they try and basically put an end to it by saying they don't see a way forward for it. Um, and that kind of thing. So, you know, our, our approach right now is to try and find other locals that are like us or that are like us in similar ways and to do so humbly because we have a lot to learn and different locals have different styles. Um, you know, I think one thing that is apparent to me and interesting to me is the number of locals in CWA who are led by African-Americans who have, um, particular experience in this country, um, in the workforce and in society and have a very clear view of, you know, how this country works. And so we've been trying to, you know, connect with, with those locals and other locals um, that are um, not afraid to fight, you know, and that, that actually, you know, like to fight, like to stand up, aren't afraid to do so. And that's kind of where we're at right now. I want to be real about it. You know, I think there's a lot of pissed off workers in this country, but our level of organization is just not where it needs to be. And that's because, you know, these big apparatuses that take our dues are not right now under control of those pissed off workers, you know? And um, so that's, that's where we're at. And I think to some degree, the level of class struggle in this country is reflective of that. You know, that there's a lot of anger, there's a lot of alienation, there's a lot of um, desire for something different, but people don't always see a clear picture on how to do it because our organization is so weak, even though there's, you know, a lot of fancy offices, a lot of um, fancy conventions, oh, yeah. a lot of big salaries, you know, um, but those resources aren't being put into a place where people could actually see what workers organization looks like and what a real campaign and struggle looks like. 
Yeah, I mean, my so I, no, go ahead. No, I was just saying I could preach all day on that. But, <laughs> but yeah, yeah, I was just going to say, you know, I think the, um, you know, my kind of thought process was something that gets thrown around a lot is that, you know, if you're in like if you're really a leader, then you're like creating other leaders, you know, mm -hmm. and that gets said a lot. But like, you know, what does it actually mean? And I think like you were saying, you know, seeing it as responsibility and giving mm -hmm. people other people the, the some responsibility, you know, like yeah. uh, I think a lot of leaders are unwilling to share any, you know, like you said, they're unwilling to share that with other people. But when people come to you, you need to be able to give them the any tools that you have with which right. to take on some responsibility and also with which to take some action, you know, at their level and, you know, right. be encouraging people to take action. You know, if there's stuff that is not getting done, you know, even at your level, you know, as president or your level, whatever, at their particular workplace or their particular unit, there's, you know, there's the ability to take some action as, as soon as possible. And I think, you know, taking action early when some of these issues arise, you know, calling it out right away, calling it out in the mm -hmm. meeting, even, you know, if you can get a group of people yeah. together, that stuff is so important because, you can actually get them to back down, you know, quite quickly if they feel that they're going to, you know, yep. they're going to have a, a serious struggle on their hands. They don't they don't want that. You know, and the email, the emails can be surprisingly helpful again if you can get those out there early so that they can just, you know, back off and move on to their next uh, uh, tactic. You know, I had so I had a group of rank and file nurses on the program the other day. They're running a slate for the Board of uh, Directors of Minnesota Nurses Association. And, you know, it kind of gets at what you were saying before. One of them said that our society has changed a ton in the past, you know, so many years, but specifically just in the past few years, um, mm. you know, you talked about pissed off workers. What, you know, do you think there's been some like, you know, significant, you know, qualitative change in the past, like three or four years? And, and, and what is that? You know, what is that change? What are you seeing out there? I think, you know, the big things for us and the group of workers who I'm with every day, you know, I think that, um, you know, the uprising, I think, was a huge thing, um, you know, even for people that weren't necessarily participants, but who were observers of it and who were thinking about it and worried about it. And, you know, some people. The George um, Floyd uprising. The George Floyd uprising. Just for people right? that aren't necessarily local or people that yeah. don't understand what it's called. Right, right. Minneapolis, the center of world revolution. Um, and then, I mean, obviously COVID. And then for us you know, in particular in the call center where I work, the, the sort of trauma of being forced back into the office where we had a major struggle against that, you know, we were working from home for two and a half years and we were forced back to the office. And now it's really come out in the business press that, that the return to office was really not about the initial things we thought it was about, about, you know, saving downtowns or, or the company's bullshit about, um, collaboration and synergy, but it was culture, really about workplace culture. Yeah. Don't forget that one. No, it's come out in, in the business press. There's an article, for instance, in fortune magazine and in other places where they, they talk about the return to office was a, a way of doing layoffs without calling it layoffs that they were trying to get people to quit. Um, because like under our union contract, right. If somebody quits, then they don't get, um, they don't get the same surplus payout that they would if they laid us off. So it's cheaper for them. Uh, it lowers headcount. Um, and it makes people get used to working in, in kinds of extreme environments, you know, so it just sort of creates this whole culture of pressure, um, and your willingness to, you know, abide by the pressure. So, you know, we lost in the last year, we lost 17% of our workforce in our call center from people, um, quitting, resigning, retiring, 
uh, being fired or dying. And uh, that's a huge never before. I've worked in this workplace for 20 years. Never before have we had a year where we lost 17% of the workers. So um, it, it just shows sort of like what the bosses are willing to do. But to your question, it also means that our workforce, I think, has their eyes wide open to the realities that they know the company lies. They know that the company puts profit above safety, above efficiency, even um, yep. above, you know, um, above any of our concerns about time with our family, about saving money from commuting, about concerns about the environment, all these things that the companies proclaim they care about uh, really show that they don't. So I think people, I'd say in terms of what changes have happened or come out of it, I mean, I think people, there's very much a sort of feeling of, you know, us against them and seeing the reality of what, you know, the boss's rule is. Now, that again, that doesn't mean that people have great confidence in right. us being able to defeat it because, like I said, people's main response was to quit the job, right, mm -hmm. rather than to necessarily become super active in the union. But uh, a number of people have become active in the union and, and our core of people who are stewards are like, you know, they're hardcore and they're, they're militant and they're, they're, they don't ever think the union is going too far or being too militant. They always think we need to be doing more. We need to be fighting more. We need to be fighting harder. These bosses are assholes and liars. Right. Um, so I think that consciousness has really become more widespread. Um, and the kind of the tolerance for sort of ass kissers and, um, you know, suck ups and people just have a lot less patience for those, that kind of approach. Have the, those people that you're talking about, the the stewards that are ready to keep going, keep going. Have they been there a long time or are some of them newer? It's a or mix. What's the, okay. Yeah. The core of them have been, the core of them have been in our, in our workplace, the core of them have been there for, for a while and have seen, you know, developments over some time. That's not true in some other places. So for instance, we built, uh, you know, one of the things that I ran on for president was wanting to build the steward structures in the rest of our local, like we had in our workplace in the call center. So, and they're a little different because the call center, when we're all together anyways, we're all in one place, but the retail stores are all across the state of Minnesota from Mankato right. all the way up to the iron range. So, we had to build a, a network of stewards in that environment where people weren't all in the same place. And we had to rely on text loops and social media and, you know, zoom meetings and stuff like that. And similarly, we did that with technicians who again are not only all across Minnesota, but are actually in the Dakotas, Nebraska and Iowa as well. Um, but we've been able to do that. We've been able to build these structures, uh, these networks of, of workers um, who are always interested in hearing about what's going on in other parts of the state or in other parts of the region, because, Sometimes that tells you about what's going to happen in your workplace next. Um, if a boss is, you know, if they're rolling out some new plan or policy right, in one area, right. we're pretty quick to find out about it and be able to get prepared for it to come into other areas or push back on it, uh, for right. instance. Right. So um, so I think to your question, there, it's a mix. It's a mix of people that have been around for a while and some new people. And I think that, yeah, I think that our approach you know, of being ultra democratic and transparent, of being militant and not afraid to fight and being kind of humble and, you know, real about who we are. We're not like we're, you know, we don't have airs on. We don't ask people to kiss our rings or right. know, that kind of thing. I think that's been a good approach and has, you know, brought people in. Right. I think, you know, yeah, you need to be humble with each other. 
you know, understanding yeah. of each other and trying to, you know, uh, yeah. uh, understand what's going on and not put one workplace or one environment over another. But at the same time, yeah, be, be you know, really fight the boss. And that's what people want to see is, you know, targeting the the real enemy of uh, of our class, those people that are yep. screwing us over at every turn and pretty much, you know, People have to like even the people that won't admit it. I mean, everybody knows that they don't care about us. Like it's so obvious, you know, from the politicians totally. on down to the, you know, the leaders in our workplaces, like they don't care about us and they'll, you know, throw us under the bus so quick, you know, right. for even a little bit of, you know, a bonus or a career, you know, jump or literally anything, apparently, it seems like. So right. 100%. Yeah. I really appreciate you speaking with me. Is there anything else you want to talk about or mention before you go? I, uh, you've been doing a lot of good work. All yeah, of so and I said, that's a collective thanks, you, not just you, you, but every, right. all of you. <laughs> no. And, and it's important that that be noted too, because I think, I think one way of a, another way of measuring our kind of success as, as activists, as radicals is to what degree are we engaging with other people? And I think one of the obvious dangers, and I, I'm sure that you've seen this, uh, just like I have is radicals can sometimes get in a bubble, you know, where yep. they're only talking to the people that's easiest to talk to for them, whether it's sort of cultural, political, geographic, you know, who, what your sort of, you know, what your demographic is, any of those kinds of things can easily become little bubbles. Yep. And I think it's important. And actually it's also kind of fun and challenging to engage with people outside of those bubbles and to, you know, learn how to build relationships with different kinds of people, you know, and, and it, it makes you, it makes you smarter because it gives you more insight into what other parts of the class are thinking and doing and acting like I really enjoy, for instance, when I go do store visits, like up in the iron range or in uh, Baxter, Minnesota, or, you know, Duluth and Cloquet. Cause I get, you know, I get a different mix of people's experiences than I do from people in the cities and the suburbs. Um, and I think, you know, similarly, it's important to talk to people of different, different ages, you know, in different realities, people live in different neighborhoods. Um, you know, one thing, again, I, I'm a city boy and I kind of grew up sort of like, um, hostile to the suburbs, but right. like most of our, you know, most of our members live in working class suburbs. And the reality is, you know, the suburbs are overwhelmingly working class now. And, you know, that's part of the reality too, is, is engaging with people who've grown up in the suburbs, but are not, you know, not wealthy people. And, you know, how do they see the world? So I think like that's a, a, a big thing to think about uh, for any radical is to what degree am I actually engaging with working class people, you know, beyond just sort of my my click or my subset or my bubble. Yeah, anytime I'm at a, an event or a party where I'm, you know, with friends of friends or people I wouldn't mm -hmm. usually like connect with, the, you know, like the first or second question is like, oh, where do you work? What do you do? And they're yeah. like, what are the challenges with that? You know, so like, mm -hmm. I'm like noting all that stuff down in my head, like, you know, the yeah. next time I'm talking to, you know, a truck driver, or I'm talking to mm -hmm. this person or whatever, I'm like, okay, I'm going to keep that stuff in my in my brain, because, you know, then you can, you know, actually have an educated opinion on, you know, the stuff that they're dealing with, you can start to dig into that stuff. Because, you know, I mean, you know, when you start trying to have a conversation with a worker and they know that you don't know anything about what they do or their yeah. their industry or whatever, like it's obvious right away. I mean, you know, anybody that works in sure. an industry, you know, your industry really well, like, you know what the heck's going on and and what right. it's like. So as soon as somebody starts talking some BS to you, you're like, uh, right. yeah, this is, you know, and I think a lot of radicals, like you said, when you're in the bubble, you just think like all workplaces are the same and like, right. you know, you just start, you know, I don't know 
talking some, you know, uh, marks or something, you know, or some other, uh, you know, whatever mm-hmm. the, the, and a lot of that is not, that is not really a great starting point, starting with, you know, the workplace and the stuff that people are encountering on a daily basis. I mean, that's where you need to start because that's top yeah. of everybody's mind. Well, I really appreciate your, uh, time, Kieran. I know you're busy, so I will let you yeah, go. Man. Thanks so much for speaking with me. Let me say that I appreciate yeah. your, your, um, your show, Nick. I think, uh, you know, I think you deserve some credit for the discipline you've had to maintain it. And, to, you know, a lot of projects come and go and, uh, you know, yours has, has been engaging for some time now. And that really shows some commitment, which is another quality that I think we need more of. So thank you. Thank you very much, Karen. Take care. Later. And that's our special interview. Thanks for listening. Solidarity. This has been a Socialist News and Views special interview.